someone will catch our SOS. You know, man, I should have listened to you when you said that probably wasn't the best idea to go uh, searching for treasure in the lost tomb of Alex Abel. I mean, he's not even dead yet, so I'd, like, I'd assume there isn't that much good down here. And we haven't found anything good down here except for, well, this hole that we find ourselves in. The oldest fucking trick in the book, and we fell for it. I thought that the worst thing that would happen to us in that dungeon was when we encountered uh, my ex. Remember that gelatinous cube? Uh, she was nice. I liked her. Oh, yeah, that seems nice. Uh, I get how dating a taller girl can be kind of intimidating sometimes, Norman, but that's kind of a hang-up that I think that's worth getting over. I'm fine with cuboid women, but we just didn't get on. Let's leave it at that. Ahoy down there! Oh, fuck! Is that, is that someone out there? It's, it's, it's the two of you again. I, I must say, this isn't really who, is exp- who I was expecting to catch here. Oh, oh, fuck! Is that Malone Brett? Dungeon Crawler Extraordinaire? Well, I, I mean, I'm, I'll be honest. I was really planning on just, like, looting whoever fell in here, but... I'd rather you didn't. Now that I've been caught on audio... I perhaps should adopt the more pro-social aspect. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have a rapport, I think. Do you really want to go through our pockets? I, I can guarantee you that between the two of us, there's going to be more than enough to have you fully encumbered. And then getting out of here is going to be a huge pain in the ass. Hmm. I think this is the second time that I've had the two of you at a disadvantage when it comes to having you confined in a physical space such as, I don't know, a shipping container or a pit. But I thought that this would be an excellent opportunity, now that I've got you here, to do what I always do when I have somebody at my mercy and opine on a subject that I'm interested in while they can't leave. Ah, captive audience classic. All right, uh, what do you have in mind? Well, I was thinking about dungeons and dungeon crawling, and my suspicion is that this is a type of game that people who come to unknown armies are trying to get away from because it's very easy to find a fifth ed game and it's very hard to find a game of anything else in an RPG. And I think that most people who play unknown armies have played a lot of RPGs, which means they've probably played a lot of dungeon crawls. I would agree. But I was thinking about it the other day, uh, actually based on your show, so you've got nobody but to blame but yourself for my... Um, patches the hyena type behavior here. Uh, I was thinking about how there is an unknown army's dungeon crawl called Ascension of the Magdalene, and y'all were saying, you know, it wasn't so great for a bunch of reasons. But then I was thinking, you can make good dungeon type adventures in horror games. There are lots of them for Call of Cthulhu. There's a few for Delta Green. And I think that there are certain principles that are going to be fun when you take them and put them in unknown armies and do them not the same way that you would do them in another game, but certain general concepts that can make this idea fun. Or I'm even going to suggest some stuff that you're already doing that I think is basically dungeon crawling, just in a different context. Could you elaborate on what you mean by dungeon type adventure? Uh, you got to go to a dangerous area that is enclosed and you've got some reason for being there. I personally think that the thing that distinguishes this from other types of RPG play is that there is a focus on room-by-room exploration. I think that is one of the defining features. That's one of the things that divides it from other types of you will explore an area or you will engage in lots of filler combat or you will get the treasure. 
I think that the room by room exploration is, is the big one for me. I think that that type of gameplay can be fun, even in games that are not focused on collecting loot or dealing with lots of filler combat or other things that people are probably tired of when they go, when they come to unknown armies. Yeah, I mean, I'd say that really all of a, dun- a dungeon is in sort of the broadest definition as applied to RPGs is just a gameplay conceit where the encounters are laid out spatially room by room as opposed to, as is often the case, by time, which is how things work in most investigative RPGs or most unknown armies adventures. Or to go back to kind of classic D&D again, the other one would be a hex crawl, which is laid out by space, but sort of on a wider scale that's less granular um, with the dimensions of the space than what you'd get with a dungeon crawl. And you can do that sort of thing in any system, I think. The thing that really set me down this path, besides your description of... Ascension of the Maggie in a couple episodes back, it was also the descriptive text given in the original Sleeper book for the Brotherhood of Harmonious Repose Temple. It is a reposing Buddha temple, is the name of it, I think. And they give a description of the surface level characteristics and then all of this the procession of secret rooms that you can go into. And it was a zone guarded by a bunch of legendary badasses with a bunch of rooms filled with loot, secret doors, and traps. Sounds like a dungeon to me, yeah. The other thing that inspired me to think about this was your episode about the Brotherhood of Harmonious Repose when you, I think there's a throwaway line about how they were just mostly destroyed by the Japanese during the the war in 37 because their headquarters was in Nanking. And they were pretty racist and didn't think the Japanese posed any threat to them. Which to me is, I, I still think there must have been very, very, um, very, mu- very much head in ass at that point to not think that the Japanese were a problem. But then again, they were a, a cult cabal. Yeah, yeah. That that whole excuse given in the uh, book is a bit convenient, but that's also a behavior that you absolutely see from secret societies and cabals and whatnot so true i can go out of the direction but we kind of always wanted that during the episode we were discussing the scenario that. that i imagined was essentially that the original hq in nanking the temple of the crying buddha was largely abandoned by the time the imperial japanese army got to it which is a helpful plot conceit because it means that you don't have to, i didn't have to come up with like 30 elite motherfuckers with unstoppable yeah. techniques it was just, okay, like three or four guys who, for whatever reason, didn't leave. And then a, an avatar of the captain who tells the player characters who are just, you know, random schlubs in the the um, Imperial Army, go loot this temple for me. You can keep anything that you want that's not the item I want from the temple, which is the Jade Cup. Go get the Jade Cup and I, you will be rewarded with whatever it is that you desire. All right, so the setup for this adventure is that you are members of the Imperial Army during the Rape of Nanking and have been tasked with uh, looting this Brotherhood of Harmonious Proposed Temple during the chaos. This is a setup that I think would work very well in like a Call of Cthulhu 
or I mean Delta Green historical Delta Green sort of setup. It's the sort of game I would run in Delta Green like a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, but doing it in unknown armies uh, is fun as well. Uh, probably more fun, arguably, because you can have more fun stuff than just oh, it's 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 um it's Yogg-Sothoth or whatever. Setting it during an atrocity is a cheap trick that I use for historical scenarios because that's instantly attention getting and. Without digging too far into Ascension of the Maggie, I think that was one of the flaws with it, is that it has a generally good context and background for what's going on in the Holy Roman Empire, but they didn't center it on any actual interesting event that any normal person would know or think about from that time period. Like, mm, this guy disappears and makes a pain. Okay, the Holy Roman, okay. I mean, it's Prague, right? Defenestrations of Prague, uh, Endless Wars of Religion. Like, there's a whole bunch of fun stuff that you could that you could do if you just fudge the timeline a little bit. Setting the adventure during the defenestration of Prague, uh, which is only a couple of years like later, would give it a lot more oomph. And it would also make sense because um, it would be the uh, the Wunderkammer or whatever, uh, or the Kunstkammer of Rudolf II, but he's dead, and that's why it's abandoned. It, it, it's not that hard to adapt, I don't think. But there's more stuff going on. I wouldn't call not setting something during like some big historical event in and of itself flaw. If you're doing something for a one shot, especially, it's yeah, it's like a good attention grabbing technique. But one of the weird things about uh, Ascension of the Maggie is that it's also kind of like a gazetteer for the era. It's it's obviously like written in such a way that it's angling towards using that book as a foundation for running a longer term campaign uh in that setting in which case it might not be good to start with the defenestration of prague as good as it would be to end with the defenestration of prague it kind of depends on how you want to use it then they could take out all that ogl nonsense and add more historical background and more places to yeah, go yeah i agree i know that you guys already did a, a big deep dive on ascension of the maggie so my feeling with with uh, Temple of the Crying Buddha was, yeah, cheap attention-grabbing tactic uh, to get the players in the door. Don't actually, like, have them go out and participate in bayoneting babies and stuff, because nobody wants to fucking play that. But instead, think of a way that each pre-generated character's vice can be played upon. Like, okay, this guy's a drug addict, this guy's... One of, one of the big things for guys who would have fought in that war is that their experience of the last 20 years would have been between hunger and constant starvation because that was essentially the experience of the Thais for democracy in the show era. So, you know, one guy's always hungry, etc. But um, I was thinking, like, okay, Temple of the Reposing Buddha, you've got to have some, like, interesting shit to explore and stuff to find, and some fucked up death traps, and some weird-ass people to fight. But it's got to be an unknown armiesified version of that, so you can't just have, like, goblins and ghosts and stuff, because that's, that's not, uh, it's not thematically fitting, and it's also just boring as hell. I could see UA spins on both of those things. I just like the idea of it's just you're just ordinary Imperial Japanese army guys fighting goblins in a, like a very traditional dungeon <laughs> with like bayonets and shit. Yeah, yeah that's fun. Sure. Yeah. So my my first the first thing that I would say is no filler combat. I think that was probably the biggest objection everyone had to Obsession of the Magdalene was that it had a lot of like yes. and then two d twenty clockwork men appear. Yeah. I mean, like it's also just like that's not where the strengths of UA as a system lie. Yeah. In, like, pitched melee combat. So, one of the the people who comes after you in Crime Buddha is an avatar of the warrior 
who fights the enemies of the five races under one union. And her basic tactic is to suicide bomb you over and over again with grenades, because as long as she's fighting the Imperial Japanese army, it doesn't hurt her. All right, sure. And so you have to find, you have to use your imagination and like, okay, maybe in the room that has the giant river of mercury, you, you want to push her into that because that's not an attack. That's just blood poisoning. Or uh, when I, when I ran at the, um, the players hit her with a dose of five of uh, cold food powder or uh, what five minerals powder, which is a psychoactive drug made from crushed minerals that the, uh, that the alchemists would use to get blazed. All right. Yeah. Good creative use of the terrain or items you find around the dungeon. Yeah, classic and stuff. Just have have the rooms have stuff in them that's fun to explore. Because I'm thinking, I'm thinking, okay, how what, what if you told me to make like you know a dungeon or whatever? Unarmed armies is full of wizards and cabals, right? And those yeah. people have hideouts where they keep their stuff. Yeah, I would definitely agree. Uh, one of the sort of uh, like ideas that we throw around a lot in regards to like, haha, unknown armies dungeon crawl, but what if? Is the Alex Abel Wizard Tower? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, look, classic, I, I want to like, get into that. I want to get into that, but let's let's go over the temple first. All right. Yeah. 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 So I don't, I don't need to do like a full a full review of the um of a full module review, but essentially just having having um not pointless filler combat, having interesting things in each room that are thematically on brand for unknown armies, but also like interactive and interesting ways like uh you know puzzles and just trinkets to find that might be useful later things that play on the character's vices like you know cold food powder for the drug addict or the pillars of meat rivers of wine room for the hungry guy yeah it's since a dungeon is just fundamentally a series of encounters arranged by space like any good encounter you should be thinking of like okay what's the strength of this system uh, and unknown armies, unlike D and D, arguably, there's not really a. It's not really well suited towards these like big set piece melee combats. So think of what UA is suited for towards uh, interacting with weird magical shit, seeing fucked up stuff that causes uh, shocks to the stress meters. Intricately detailed simulations of arguments. And yes, also a very good one. Yeah, uh, go to a dungeon, and in one of the room, several of the rooms, there's just a guy that wants to debate you. There is something that Greg Stolze wrote on the UA list, um, like in the either the early 2000s or the late 90s. No, I think it was the early 2000s um, that I found as I was searching around unnatural on the unnatural phenomena website. And it's just, it was just titled, Playing Dungeons and Dragons Under the Unknown Armies System. And it goes, GM, orcs have thick brawny necks, but no match for your powerful hands. And it feels good. It's a visceral thrill to feel those neck bo- bones separate and snap. But you're distracted <laughs> from your pleasure by the nagging yelp of one of the smallest orc warriors. Porgma, it cries. Porgma, Porgma. It's familiar. One of the few orcish words you know. It means... Daddy, rank three violence check. Well, if I recall correctly, because we're talking about the old websites, the original concept for the game was sort of a dungeon crawl. It was essentially, essentially, essentially Call of Cthulhu, but you play as someone going to break into the wizard's place of residence and take his stuff. That was what the new Inquisition originally was. 
I mean, yeah, I mean, there was a bit of that, but it's hard to say. The early stuff was very much designed like a comic book. Yeah, I think it's sort of like different mediums and sort of the different priorities that uh, would be associated with each of those. That extremely lurid description just makes me think of that one copy pasta. Uh, wine circulated through his thick veins after dark. I don't you, know. No, one. never mind. No, nope, I right. see where you're headed with this. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to say the whole thing, but Mel knows which one I'm referring to. Orcs could be anywhere, he thought. Oh, you you can't you can't just find replace for orcs, my, my dude. Yeah. <laughs> not in that context. No, you aren't wrong. Anyway, so that that's a that's a scenario that I wrote to to be a proof of concept for this because mm. I really was fixated on this idea, but the more I think about it, the more I think that it is actually quite applicable to just things that you might do in a game. Because most Unknown Armies games have either groups of dangerous people who are in a location, or they have dangerous locations of some kind. And for the most part, we don't need micro-detailed rules for five-minute dungeon exploration turns and things like that. But it is, I think, a lot of fun when you go and take on the secret organization of whatever type once you actually go into their place of of business to then be confronted with a mix of dangerous traps and cool stuff to find. Unknown Armies doesn't do magic items as linear progression in the same way that your D20 Fantasy does, but it does have magic items, and a lot of those are super fun because they're a form of lateral advancement unlocking new options rather than just providing for a linear increase in power. I think good magic items in any system should do that. Like, sure, D&D has more of an associate with plus one sword of sodomizing or whatever, right? Like, <laughs> just like things that give you cheat what? bonuses that are considered. Have you been playing Fatal again? Uh, hey, I, I, you don't, I don't get on you about what you do in your free time. <laughs> Fair enough. I know what you get up to in your made RPG session, Stormson. But yeah, like D D has more, especially as it's gone on, has gotten more of this assumption of like, okay, you you will get magic items, and this is part of character advancement. Oh, I, I, I'm you say as as it's gone on, but you can go back to like the three different basic books and to AD and D and find the same essential assumed progression of. After a certain point, it is necessary to have a bare minimum level of of hardware on your guy because it because basically the same reason why it's important in Pathfinder now because you need it to get through DR because after a certain point, lots and lots of boys in the dungeon have a resistance to non magical damage and because increasingly as you go deeper and deeper. That that shit just becomes more and more common on the random treasure table. I don't disagree, but I would say in the it's less of a case of those assumptions not being there, uh, so much as as the game's on on those assumptions become more explicit because the accrued wisdom um, has been collected of like, oh, okay, yeah, like it, you, where the DM's guide or whatever will actually tell the DM, hey, you need to give players these at some point if you want them to fight high level monsters, as opposed to. And earlier editions where it was just 
wasn't even mentioned and it's kind of no, expected that, that they figure it the out. No, that was the Garg stat block was that you should not spawn this monster if the boys don't have a magic weapon Good because otherwise it's faster than them so they can't get away and they can't fight it and that's a very uninteresting encounter. That scaling problem may be very different in Anonami's because like think about Anonami's like even if you're a powerful sorcerer you can still be like killed by being punched in the head. Yeah, that's the other thing is like and the way combat is included in D&D is usually is just like a means of attrition on resources, whereas Unknown Armies, just the chances of lethality on combat are like a lot higher and there's less emphasis on resources in terms of like, oh, how many arrows do I have? Do I have ropes for scaling this wall sort of shit? Tormson, I'm going to argue that the other space that you made for the Scottish Rite, that other space has the essential features of a dungeon crawl. It is a confined really? space with a bunch of discrete areas. It's got interesting social challenges and puzzles. You can do a combat in there if you really want to fight Tojo. You don't need to fight Tojo. Tojo's a nice octopus. If you just get to know him, talk about existentialism with him. That's a spoiler. Ignore that. I guess so. I wasn't thinking in that way, but now you bring it up, you're right. I'm bringing it up to highlight that this is that the the good features, the things that we want, are already present in a lot of places. Yeah, sure. Because I was thinking about how in that same book, the nine ten building, uh, which is an other space um, accessible through the One World Trade Center, which is like an other space that represents the optimism of the the fallen lost optimism of the long 90s um the way i have it set up uh within inhabitants and like weird encounters with a giant bart simpson doll and very obvious um xps of samuel huntington and francis fukuyama and these things it was very like now i'm looking at it i'm like this is this would be a dungeon crawl if i just developed it a little bit more and even when i ran it i ran it very much like a dungeon crawl but I didn't, I didn't, I, I, looking back, I feel like I half-assed it when I should have full-assed it because it would be better with more, a bit more stuff in it. I think one of the big, like, things that shapes a dungeon crawl and the concerns associated with it, um, and it's something I've run into when writing dungeons for other systems, is, is this the dungeon designed to be plundered all in one go, or is it designed around repeat expeditions. Okay, what's the purpose of it within like the unknown armies like s- system structure? Like is it a milestone? Yeah. Is it an objective or is it like a resource? I, it depends on how you want to use it, I guess. Like if you have like one milestone associated with the dungeon, then I, I think that should probably be like a one or two session thing of like you go in there, sure. you explore through the rooms and find cool encounters and then you get whatever you achieve whatever milestone is at the end of that dungeon then you leave but the i could also see something thing. that's a more of like a kind of mega dungeon you set up where you have several milestones or maybe all the milestones of the campaign scattered around this dungeon and thus that necessitates more serialized expeditions into the space that's interesting that's that could work as a sort of like exploring an other space kind of um, set up, which that like other noughts was one of the uh, second ed examples for a cabal. 
Uh, I know, Melon, you've got a character that's set up, an NPC that's set up for that sort of situation as an opposition oh, yeah. force. Uh, the the um, and, and let me tell you, it's a great thing. I'm the one who found you instead of her. Uh, explorers are the furthest realms. Most other spaces are um, written in pretty broad strokes, and I think that's fine. I think that most people are not really interested in mechanically simulating travel through a dangerous place and unknown armies because they just don't think that's the kind of thing they want to do in this game. But could we convince them otherwise? Well, I was going to say the one guy who put a little more of this type of spin on it in his work, besides um, people in this call, is when Ben did the special junkyard in Oddities yeah. and Endlings, yeah. he mm. basically included like wilderness and dungeon exploration rules in the original write-up. And then he wrote a bunch of points of interest and characters that you can meet there. So he did the, he did what you were talking about. He, he took the other space and he made it into a, a place that you can explore as the central focus of a game. Now looking back on the way I've seen other spaces written up and the way I've written them up in the past and what's worked and what's not, I think having more of that dungeon crawl aspect would make other spaces just conceptually much more interesting. And one of the like kind of key things with dungeon crawling, especially if you're doing a dungeon crawl that necessitates um, more than one trip, is that sort of uh, push your luck sort of play where it's you're you're all you have constantly dwindling resources, and it's a question of. How much can you push those resources through uh, clever play and luck to get lots of loot before you fuck yourselves over, right? Now, Unknown Armies doesn't really have support for a bunch of weird resources the way D&D does. Yeah, and I wouldn't I wouldn't waste your time on that. I, I would I would put that to the side as a less important concept. I disagree because, I mean, one of the main means of playing Unknown Armies is focused around resource management, is it not? Help me out here, brother. Adepts. Adepts and charges. Of course. So could you tie that into another space or dun- and or dungeon crawl in some way where you're having to spend charges to get further in the dungeon? And one of the things there, too, that's like, if we're kind of using a hit points... Uh, comparison here. Uh, if you're an adept, presumably you're exploring this area because there's the hope that you can get charges here. Kind of like how if you're an adventurer, uh, there's the hope that you're spending these hit points fighting monsters, but you'll also find like healing potions in the dungeon somewhere, right? Well, what I think is uh, the original motivation for dungeon crawling in the earliest versions was purely greed. Advancement was entirely based on recovery of treasure. And I don't imagine that anyone would ever try to mechanically simulate that in Unknown Armies. But what I do like is that Unknown Armies is filled with characters who are strongly motivated by greed. It is probably about half the factions in the book and half of the NPCs. And so while you're not simulating that one-to-one mechanically, that whole push-your-luck element in order to attain great value from the things that you steal from this place or the power that you achieve, that is very thematically resonant with what a lot of the NPCs, if nothing else, and unknown armies are doing. And I've I've always felt that third edition tried to put a bit more of a pro-social spin on 
the stuff that the average player character is doing, probably to fight back against second edition's reputation as cosmic bum fights. From what Stolze told us during the interview, that was very intentional on his part, partially because of that, partially because he was just kind of tired of writing a bunch of shit that was so ceaselessly cynical. But I think that there is definitely a a real fun element in that type of picaresque story. I'd agree. Yeah, absolutely. One thing, one thing that I do like about the old gold for experience system is that it shows you how people behave when making money is rewarded and being pro-social is not rewarded in an RPG. You see a dramatic behavior change in how people act when saving saving a life is worth nothing and getting $100 will get you to level 2. But it's still more pro-social than what D&D was for a lot of its history, where it's just XP for murder. XP for yeah, killing so monsters that's, and shit. that's, I think, introduced as an optional rule in the basic likes, becomes more prominent in 1-ed and 2-ed, and by 3-ed is the main flavor of the game. Yeah. Uh, actually, I'd go any further. Like, 2-ed, it's the assumption uh, is that you're getting your XP from kill monsters. The gold XP rules are presented as optional in the second edition core books. And then f- I think fifth kind of realized that just total extermination of everything in your path did not necessarily fit with either what some people wanted or the stuff they wanted to create. And so I think a lot of that is essentially moved away from having the advancement tied to any specific mechanical action. It's now just whenever it feels appropriate or whenever you have accomplished some ex- some some goal. 5e still has XP um and oh, it if has you it, read yeah. yeah and if you read the official modules and like campaigns and whatnot, there's a lot of XP for milestone sort of stuff. Yeah, that's where I, where I was headed with this is that it's it's now purely for progression, just yeah. abstractly defined rather than gathering a resource. But you still get, it's still Operating on the assumption that you get XP for killing monsters and stuff. The reason where where I'm headed with this is that a lot of a lot of these weird locations end up on the corkboard because the players have a picture of like the back rooms or the utilidors beneath Disney or the pool rooms or a a strange and scary place. And that can mean a lot of different things, but one of the things it can mean is that this is someone who would like to have a modestly detailed minigame for exploring that location. Sure, I'd agree. In which case, I'd honestly argue that some of that more procedure-driven stuff might enrich in that experience. Um, is Maybe not so much player-facing, but having stuff behind the GM screen where it's like, all right, say you got a place they're exploring with a few competing factions involved. How do you handle things like, quote-unquote, wandering monsters? What's the chance that you run into a guy from one of those factions doing patrols or whatever, right? I mean, if you have, like, competing factions that are in there, you could have them as, like, elements of a random table, or you could just yeah. steal the um, the idea from Blades in the Dark where you have the clocks running. And you roll against the clocks to see how the no. competing factions are going on on their objective, and that affects whether you're going to bump into them or where they are in the dungeon compared yeah. to your players. Yeah. And that ties in well with stuff like the coercion rules, and that it gives you more solid mechanics for the whole interfaction diplomacy thing of we're 
getting this guy to work against this other guy. Maybe, like, say you got these two competing factions in there, and one of the factions leaders has uh, the Orc King as his fear passion, right? He's really fucking scared of the Orc King. You can leverage that with coercion because it's one of his passions, yeah? Sure, that makes sense. Um, so the coercion in there would... That's the thing. It's like, if you're going to make an Unknown Armies dungeon, I feel that like a lot of the traps and puzzles and problems should somehow bring in those coercion rules. Yes. Coercion rules bring in stuff for like spending charges and gaining charges. Weird magic items. I mean, like the fun thing about puzzles is the pu- a lot of the time puzzles don't really concretely interact with the game's mechanics and kind of their logic. At most, it's like, oh, you're, you you're fail the puzzle, you lose it. Bestow, the greatest shotgun scenario ever written, can be run in almost any system because yeah. it doesn't rely on the skill system or sanity tests or anything like that. It's just a use of your imagination. Yeah, exactly. And most puzzle encounters in any role-playing game are like that. Uh, with the most that they interact with, the hit po- the mechanics be like, oh, you make a wrong guess, lose some hit points as a penalty. One interesting um, Unknown Army's twist on the whole operation you could uh, put up is um, by having... I was thinking of, like, imagine if there was a cabal that was not going through the dungeons, but preparing the dungeons to keep people out or keep That's fun. Get them going through. Um, like, let's work out these puzzles together. <laughs> sort of a dungeon keeper sort of thing? One piece of media that I steal from relentlessly for all of my work, not just for Unknown Armies, but for Delta Green, for my own fantasy heartbreaker that I use to run just plain vanilla dungeon exploration, is a series of books by French cartoonist Louis Trondheim and a bunch of other people called Dungeon. And the core dungeon series is about a guy who built a mega dungeon so that he could convince adventurers to come into it and then take their shit and kill them. Then discovered that doing this job was basically 99% personnel management because he has to make sure that the skeletons don't get eaten by like the bone-eating goblin and the bone-eating goblin doesn't get hit by the mushroom and just dealing with HR petty interpersonal HR bullshit all day. That sounds like a great setup for an objective. All right, we want to build a uh, postmodern mega dungeon. And I mean postmodern in the sense of the period, not in terms of literary devices. Except maybe they want to do that too. Or it's not that you're building a mega dungeon. You've bought a fucked up, like, <laughs> just shitty dungeon that someone has abandoned and you have to, like, fix it up. Oh, I like this a lot. It's sort of a spin on the classic Lovecraft Call Cthulhu setup of you have inherited... A yes, uh, a fucked up haunted house from your uh, lost third uncle, twice removed or whatever. And instead, the instead of like, okay, we need to explore this haunted house. That's like the first third of the campaign. The latter two thirds are flipping this haunted house, and you know, yeah. coming to terms with the ghosts in there and shit, and like trying to work with them. And then it turns out there's also like some fucked up. Like some witch used to live there and they left behind an unspeakable servant and it's in the boiler and you need to deal with that. That sounds like a ton of fun. Yeah, and that solidly fits in with the milestone system as well. It's like, okay, we yeah. have this list of problems to deal with if yeah. you want to flip yeah. this fucking haunted house. I think you can profit. use milestones pretty much in any sort of 
classic uh, RPG um, gameplay structure. I'm running a UA game right now that's pretty investigative. And I basically what I did with milestones is I just had placed them at the end of sort of the typical investigative clue tree where it's like, okay, if you go down this trail for long enough, yeah, you'll reach a milestone. Oh, like 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 each part of the mystery is its own thing. Like, okay, we got to figure out who fucked John Waterman's dog. We got to yeah. figure out, you know, why the house burned down. And then once we have all that stuff, we'll know who the killer is. Yes, precisely. Cool. My concern with that is the fact that you roll on milestones and like, what yeah. if you get them all done and you're still like, well, we're only at eighty nine percent. Well, it's like it's like those games where they don't actually tell you whether you made the right guess at the end when you say who the killer is. Yeah. <laughs> I th- the solution I've come to that one as I'm running this campaign it became quickly obvious that the players uh, were not interested in taking the risk of rolling early which helps me in that regard but the other thing is it's like you need to do uh, the uh, rolling on milestones is a mechanical representation of some event that signifies that you're going into sort of the end game of the campaign, right? So in the case of an investigation, rolling on that is not so much, okay, we've solved the mystery. It's us trying to convince some authority figure that uh, the narrative that we've built is the correct one. Like, you you might have solved the mystery entirely. uh, And you know you've gotten all the evidence and you got it. But you didn't do enough milestones to build a ta- a case that is airtight enough for uh, the occult police commissioner that you're trying to convince. The truth is not politically palatable, so yeah. your solving of the mystery is going nowhere. Yeah. Here's one that I wanted to ask about. So we're down here in the tomb of Alex Halo, right? Like he built this place until such a time as – essentially he built it because – in his great fear of death, he doesn't ever want to allow his soul to leave his body. So just like the guy in, oh God, what was just the guy, like the guy in last call He's you know, the whole concrete thing, make sure that nothing can escape. So that eventually yeah. But, but the lost tomb of Alex Abel. So I don't think he knows where it is anymore. Well, I mean, that was part of the whole shakeup was that it was lost enough that even he didn't know where it was. Yeah. So he couldn't yeah. reveal it under torture. It was one of the things that went up with the rest of the org. But um, I want to hear about the, this one that you guys were talking about earlier, the... Uh... Alex Hale Wizard Tower? Yeah. All right. That, that's always been more Tormson's idea, but what, what ideas you got for that, dude? Um, I think I could have came up with this idea when I... I was playing a bit of Yuppie Psycho, which is kind of like this horror, like a pixel art game set in a, a weird corporate environment and I've always liked the idea of having an game, army's game set in a very business corporate shitty employment um, sort that of That explains situation. a lot about the Court of the Burger Queen. There you go, yes. Um, although the Court of the Burger Queen is even a bit more Baroque than what I was thinking. Um, but I do like the sort of uh, idea of a big corporate building, uh, a big corporate tower with Alex Abel's penthouse at the top with all these like um, mystical artifacts and valuable shit up there. And he hasn't come out of there because he's having a full Howard Hughes moment, just pissing in jars and whatever. And you're making your way up this wizard's tower. And it's essentially like a classic um, going up the wizard's tower and encountering 
magical bullshit to get to the top um, setup, but with some TNI stuff, some uh, mazes of cubicles, um, a, 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 a man-eating fax machine, this sort of thing. Um, it hasn't been fully, like, it's it's just at this moment a, a, an idea, a concept, a vision, a, a like a vague vision, but I think it could be quite fun. This sounds quite similar to the KGB Wizard Tower that uh, a friend of Melon and I's uh, oh, yes. ran for us during his Esoteric Enterprises campaign. And that was probably the highlight of that game. Oh yeah, definitely, because I think the only purpose-built location in the whole thing. I think everything else was... No, no, no. no. There, there were there were two handmade dungeons and the rest was proc gen. There was the KGB Wizard Tower and then there was the Broadcasting Tower at the very end. Yeah, yeah. And there was definitely like more traditional dungeon design in the former than the latter. Where, you know, things are looping around on themselves. You're having to solve puzzles to get to the next floor. That sort of shit. Um, and... The kind of tricky thing for unknown armies um, and doing a sort of wizard tower like that. Um, I mean, the thing that immediately comes to mind for the framing device for the Alexia wizard tower is a raid of some sort on the new Inquisition. Then you run into the challenge of, all right, how do you make a combat-driven dungeon interesting in unknown armies? Where you're dealing with uh, rooms instead of full of melee combat, they're full of gunfights. I think that Unknown Armies has some of the best moment-to-moment gameplay in fights of any RPG, but I think that usually comes from the context rather than the yeah. than the just straight-up rules system, because it's always like, well, I can, you know, cast a spell on this man to make him think that his shirt is on fire and he'll spend an action taking it off, or I can cause this collection of metal objects to come to life and fall on top of something. Or I can use the coercion system in mid-battle to completely knock out one caster if I can think of the correct thing to say that will punch through all of their layers of stress defenses. I think that that stuff falls away when... And I think this was the main criticism that we had of Ascension of the Maggie, is that it was not a series of encounters that really did that. My biggest issue with Ascension of the Maggie was that there was basically no variation with how one actually interacts with the various encounters. Um, it's all just combat shit. And uh, there's some really cool ideas in there. Like, yeah, mechanomantic skeleton in these that is animating these weird uh, Fiji mermaid style um taxidermy centaurs and other mythical creatures that's cool as fuck having those just be and now you fight it is pretty boring i think with the wizard tower i'd probably copy i'd like probably steal some of the idea from um yuppie psycho as i mentioned earlier which has you playing as a new employee of a company who doesn't know why he's gotten this job at this weird place um, and in his interview, there's not even an interview. He just uh, goes up to the boss's office, and there's just uh, some scr- scrawled on the wall. It's kill the witch, and that's his mission. Uh, but he's still working. He's still employed. He has a desk and a cubicle, and he can interact with people not in a combat way because there's people, other people at work at the same time, and there's also co- like weird combat, weird rooms and shit. So in the Wizard's Tower, I'd probably have like 
certain levels of the wizard tower are just like people who work for Alex Abel who don't know there's a raid going on and don't have to be fought. Um, they could just be interacted with uh, in various ways. Um, not knowing what's going on in the outside world, perhaps, um, could be fun. Okay, that's cool. Instead of like you kicking in the doors and fighting your way to the top, it's you start like halfway up and it's about navigating your way to the top or maybe to the bottom as you realize, oh, fuck, this place is insane. I need to get out of here. Yeah, I'm thinking it could be a situation like in, what is it, uh, Better Call Saul, where Mike uh, goes into the, the, there's a company that he like uh, goes into uh, pretending to be uh, a consultant, a security consultant, and he's wandering around like, pretending to work there until he reveals himself. And that setup's fun. Like, I think more fun than a raid is like just to like, we've got fake badges or we've stolen some badges and we're pretending to be employees. We're sneaking our way up the wizard's tower, but we have to get past encounters like, oh, this is like the break room. And do we sign this birthday card for the someone who's leaving or not? Is this going to come back to bite us? Uh, silly little encounters like that would be fun. A framework for dungeons that I'm very fond of and you don't see used that much is the escape framework. Um, closest thing you typically see is like, okay, we've overextended and are drained of resources, but we still need to get the fuck out of here. But there's a old basic D&D dungeon that I'm very fond of called Horror on the Hill. And it has this great twist halfway through where, you know, you fight the, the Goblin King and... As his last move before he dies, he pulls the lever on his throne, revealing the room is like a giant pit trap. And then you fall down into the second, like, lower floor of the dungeon, which you had no idea was there up to this point. There's no way of reaching it before that pit trap gets pulled. And now this because suddenly the dynamic switches from, yeah, let's push this dungeon and see what we can bring back to holy fuck, we need to get out of here. Where are we? And that's also really cool, I think. It adds some urgency to the exploration. There's a scenario that is... It's it's Lair of, it's Lair of the Lamb is the one where you start as people who got dumped in the, the dungeon to be fed to a monster, but then you can escape and you have to like gather all of your items and stuff and then fight your way out to get to the surface. Yeah, that's a... And what's the famous... I want to say it's supposed to be like a a less boring version of God That Crawls, which is a scenario that on the surface looked really fun, but was actually really fucking boring. There's a uh, old dungeon as part of the Slavers series. I think it might be Secret of the Slavers Stockade. But like the last uh, module in that series has the slave lords throwing you into their dungeons and removing all your armor and equipment and now you need to recover that but at the start you're you know unarmored and largely unguard um like unweaponed uh unarmed there you go that's the word i was looking for unarmed unless you like you know have a monk in the party or something so you're having to fight your way out of the dungeon until you find your stuff and then the goal becomes how the fuck to get out of here because while all that's going on there's a volcano erupting nearby and that's also a you need to be careful that though because that's like sort of the uh genesis of that really annoying trope that you'll see in rpgs and video games where like all right we need to up the stakes we just take all your shit 
And depending on the game, that can be really fucking annoying. I feel like for Unknown Armies, it wouldn't be as bad because usually a character in Unknown Armies abilities aren't tied to their equipment so much as like, oh, they're an adept or an avatar or whatever. The thing that I just thought of is that the scenario Bring Me the Head is a heist. And my personal opinion is that heists are dungeon crawls with a hypertrophied planning stage. Explain. You are trying to move through an enclosed space with keyed rooms containing various valuables, defeat somehow the beings guarding the place to extract the treasure. Okay, sure. And when I say hypertrophied planning stage, I mean the reason why I don't like heists, which is that you just spend so much time going around in circles thinking about how to do things. I think that Unknown Armies has a, presents a really unique opportunity that obviously a, pre-j- a pre-baked module can't use, where the planning stage is the corkboarding stage, where your plan to get around obstacles, rather than being workshopped for an hour or ten with the other players, is placed on the board by you yourself in response to someone else's narrative beat. I would argue that the only difference between a heist and a dungeon crawl is whether or not you have the blueprints beforehand. A heist and a heist is that you do. Yes, a heist you do, and that leads to the overplanning because you know the exact lay of the land. With a dungeon crawl, there's that risk of exploration and you having to figure out how things are laid out as you're going through them. That's that's the advantage of games like... Um... Blades in the Dark, which skips that yes, whole planning yeah. phase with the whole, this is something you prepared earlier, which makes it run way better and much more interesting for a heist. Um, have, stealing some of that concept, stealing some of that energy and putting it into the corkboarding stage might be fun, but also just in play, be allowing uh, people to roll on an identity of, of course I've already thought of this sort of thing. So I don't dislike planning stages as much as you guys do. Um, I've run some very rewarding sessions where it's just a planning stage. I'd I say one of the key want, things if like is that stuff. Then go with it. It's 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 different strokes. Yeah, that's why people play Shadowrunners because they really enjoy that shit. You, the key thing you need to make that shine is to have the stage of gathering intel more active. Yeah, this is this is the the thing that the Gumshoe devs always said was that if the players are wasting too much time planning, then they have to gather more clues. And I think that's true, but it's also, I've never found it to be that helpful because if the players are going around in circles planning, it's often because they've hit a dead end and they don't have the ability to gather more clues. In that case, you do just, the best thing to do is just kind of force as a GM, like, all right, you figure things out as well as you can. Give me a decision in the next 10 minutes. I've told you about the heist that I wanted to do. And by heist, I mean dungeon crawl. And by dungeon crawl, I mean assassination. And that's... <laughs> that's you, you are the colonel's secret cadre. You're going to kill Derek Jackson for betraying Mac Attacks and joining the Sleepers. But the issue is that he is in some kind of fucked up series of layered defenses. And the corkboarding exercise is you, the player characters saying, we know that he's in this location, we know that he associates with these people, these are the hazards that we'll have to pass through. And so that's a di- a document that exists in setting as something that you, the characters, create. And yeah, then yeah. you go and you do a, a, hopefully not just 20 rooms of filler combat, but like, you know, he's, he's in this building, but the door is a portal, and, you know, he's cla- cast a, a 
pornomancy enchantment so you get so hard you can't think straight but then if you like you know you, you have to think of all these countermeasures to this stuff and it turns all that into gameplay rather than um endless planning yeah and time that with the corkboarding is cool because now it's like all right you're operating on the assumption that your characters have this blueprint now out of character in the meta sense you're doing a corkboarding session where you build that blueprint pretty much which is a lot of fun, and I can see that being super cool. In regards to Blades, in regards to Blades, I, I want to go back to Blades for a bit, because I have actually run Blades. The, the key thing with Blades, uh, I think, is that it just explicitly sets those boundaries of you can't plan beforehand. I Like, fundamentally, the flashback mechanic doesn't isn't really what dodges that, I think. Like, it's, it's a cool way of fluffing coming up with stuff beforehand, and kind of giving it that um, Ocean's Eleven feel of, okay, we're seeing the plan executed as it's being narrated. And, like, that saves time and stuff. But, like, fundamentally, you can, like, to give an example, um, Nice Black Agents uh, has a preparedness skill that does similar things to the flashback mechanics and blades of just, like, yeah, you can have something on you or whatever. You do a, a spend to do it. But Nice Black Agents is not a heist game. It can do a lot of things, including heist, but like that's not the focus of it. Fundamentally, what makes the Ocean's Eleven flashback style stuff work in Blades is that it sets that hard limit of, okay, we are not going to let you plan beforehand. The closest thing is this flashback mechanic. So the, the hard limit is what does more of the heavy lifting there than the inclusion of the flashbacks. You can also go in the complete other direction if you have a player group that fucking loves planning then just, like, corkboarding is the blueprint, and your first objective is the plan. Each milestone is, like, we're going to set this shit up, we'll set this shit up, we'll set this shit up, and then the planning isn't going anywhere, is, isn't not going anywhere, because you're, like, there is, like, okay, milestone one, milestone two, milestone three, so it doesn't feel like wasted time. This is the purpose of the game. And then at the end, you roll your dice, and then you don't, then you go through the dungeon, or you don't. There's an interesting idea of... The actual heist is just if it's successful or not is the result of yeah. the um, <laughs> the die roll at the end. Uh, the planning is the actual campaign. Whether it works or not is entirely up to that one die roll. Yeah, no, that 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 would be fun because it would change the focus. I mean, it's it's. I've never f encountered players that enjoy planning more than they like uh, enacting a plan. But if you ever encounter a group like that, that does sound like it would work. I think it could be fun. Like, not all the time, but like, what if you wanted to like do the focus on the other part of it for once uh, yeah, and then sure. go back to your dungeon crawling? That's also a good like experimental environment for figuring out like, okay, how do I make the planning stage in and of itself as engaging as possible and just yeah. leave out the actual heist and kind of <laughs> brush over yeah. that completely? Yeah. Just, just cut to yes. We've got all the money now, or we've got. Or, the oh fuck! We got. We failed the die roll. Now we're all in jail. Yeah, I could find that extremely narratively unsatisfying, but I could also see it working very well for the right group. I don't think I am that player. For other players, I could definitely see it working. I, I think it would be more acceptable if everyone had the buy-in early on yeah. where this might fail and everyone knew that going in. I think that's the case for any weird experimental RPG conceit. If you have buy-in beforehand, it will... Yeah. Or really any RPG campaign in general. If you have buy-in beforehand, things will usually go more swimmingly. This kind of reminds me of, like... 
I think one of the big strengths of RPGs as a medium is the way that they get player buy-in before the kind of narrative has even started to unfold because just through the act of character creation, ideally Um, when like a a common refrain you see in writing is the death knell for a story is I do not care what happens to these characters and RPGs as a medium have a real sweet dodge fat of like, okay, you come up with the main characters and spend a while, a decent chunk of your time building these guys from the ground up. Now, here's a question I have for you guys. Um, and it's a little bit off topic from the uh, dungeon calling aspect. But based on what uh, I think Mel mentioned earlier, although Frank mentioned earlier about never, like I've never seen anyone roll on the objective when it's not good to 100, 100% because people are afraid to. And I feel that's almost, I, I wish there was some reason that you'd want to do that. Like, like it seems like as though there's a system there. There's an element of the system which is always unused. Um, even though we know what happens if you fail, you still you still retain some points. So if you succeed, you can roll the points to the next one. Um, how do we set it up? Like, what? Do, how do we encourage people to want to actually roll when it's only at 93% or whatever um, and not for it to be a complete anticlimactic disappointment if it fails? The easy one is a timer where it's just like, all right, you have this much time in game to build up milestone points. And when that timer goes off, you're rolling with whatever you have. But UA also doesn't have like particularly robust mechanics for handling how long things take. I think a number of sessions is is better because it removes the pressure that anyone feels to track how long shit takes in the game world. Because, you know, go back to Dungeon Crawls, there's a real fixation on tracking how much in-game time is passing. And I think that and unless you can break that up into really discrete, obvious chunks, that's not something I'm interested in doing. I find that even though it's not exactly realistic, tracking how much out-of-game time has passed is always easier and much more likely to produce a decisive result because it's immediately visible and legible. It's this campaign ain't going to go longer than 10 sessions on session 10. Like you better have figured out who fucked that guy's dog because otherwise that's the end. You keep reaching for dog fucking. Um, it's like, because I was, <laughs> I was thinking about that Penny Arcade strip where he's playing golf. Oh, I was going, th- I was going I, through I Penny think... Arcade looking for some like half remembered comic, and I found that one again. It's just the one where he's yelling, "There's no dog fucking in golf." And, and now dog fucking is just always on your mind. I guess that that he was right in a way. Uh, so there's no dog fu- fucking in golf, but there apparently is in unknown armies. There is now. <laughs> Thanks, well, Mel. listen, listen, it's. It, when, once it's on the corkboard, it's canon. It's just like improv. <laughs> uh, worst McGeekian ever. Yeah, like having some sort of timer, whether you're tying it to sessions or going full Gygaxian, strict time records must be kept. When I was running Esoteric Enterprises, I had to establish a convention that the players have to leave the dungeon at the end of the adventure, at the end of, sure. by the end of the session. And that's not necessarily a timer that's tied to anything happening in the game world. Because if they spend an in-game day in the dungeon, but leave after four hours of real-time play, that's fine. But that was a timeline that that I established because I needed to encourage people to not draw stuff out. I needed to establish a general expectation of how long the game would last each time. 
I needed mm. a way to swap players in and out. That seems like the big one because you're doing the hot seat thing for that. Uh, you, you need some way of explaining, like, okay, why can't this guy come in this session because the player can't show up in a great well, way well, of explaining the, the that, is... that. If we if we end our session three miles underground, yeah. then the cast should roughly be the same when they come back. And it's not that important to me that, it, that there's an explanation, but I think that added to all the other reasons it was the right choice. I, mean, I think part of, I guess part of it is how much you want to emphasize that exit part as part of play. Cause a, a easy thing you could do is just be like, all right, let's see how far you get in this dungeon. And at the end of that four hour play period, you just head back to the village or whatever. But if you also want to include um, the wandering monster table stuff from them reaching their limit and then having to go back um, it limits that a little bit. And also just there, there's a certain, a lot of limitations that get put on you when you are not assured that you have the same group of players every session. Another option, because I like the um, having a timer um, to sort of force people to roll on the objective at that point is fine, but it's also a less like external constraint. Um, it does help to sort of guide player behavior, but I was thinking of like, how what what is an incentive to roll sooner than getting a hundred? Because there doesn't seem to be much in the way of a reason you'd want to ever do that. Um, and it's hard to come up with like a reason, but there must be one. Um, one idea that is like a like a similar to a timer is if it's not like a hard limit, but like a soft limit. Like yeah. there's this point in time where the ritual will be extra special, like have this extra effect. So if you want to hit that time frame, if you go over that time frame, I mean, you can still roll, you can still get to 100, but it won't be as, as strong an effect. But it's, it's really not that different from what you guys have suggested. Yeah, it just makes it less binary, right? Yeah, but I'm thinking like, is there any kind of tactical reason why he'd want to roll faster or like roll earlier than I when couldn't 100%? really see something like that happening in the span of a campaign that only covers one objective. Now, if you're yeah. covering multiple objectives, you have a bit more yeah. freedom there. I think like say uh, you have one of the local factions of the occult underground come up to you um, and say like, Hey, we know what you guys are up to and we're generally for it, but we also need to get out of town soon. So if you roll like soon, uh, we can help shore up whatever the objective you guys do after this is. So rolling early, if it succeeds, contributes more points towards a future objective. Sort of like uh, we, we need to nip this one in the bud so we could do this other thing that we suddenly wanted to do. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and I guess broadening that, there, there's a lot of mechanics in Unknown Army's 3rd edition for carrying over points from one objective to another that I've never really seen get you actually used. Um, if you want to just broadly encourage players rolling early, you could just have more points carried over when they roll than uh, when they just cap out the objective at 100% and make it a sure shot. Maybe if you've um, if if your objective points are matched, uh, you can carry over more than if they hit 100 or something like that. Yeah, I mean, with like I like that thematically, but it's also are you talking about the roll? Are you talking about the point total? Like you've got okay. Oh wow, our objective is up to seventy-seven percent. If we roll on this and succeed, or even if we fail, we get 
such and such a bonus or whatever. That's such, such, such a, a crapshoot because that's just like, do you get lucky with how your milestone points happen to sum up? Yeah, you want to get that gambler mentality in there. This is what. Yeah, I'm but there's no way of here. influencing uh, that total in any way because it's not like a bunch of the other mechanics in an armies where you can influence those roles with obsessions or passions or some avatar ability that lets you fuck with the dice in some way mm, that's true but i mean the main thing that comes to mind is like okay if you roll early you'd get to he- keep half your points if you just go to 100 then you don't, you got to start from scratch but it yeah. can also be kind of hard to fluff in terms of like okay why does it work like why does it work this way in the fiction you've struck the iron when it's hot as opposed to when it's perfect like perfect is the enemy of done yeah I think that's all. Yeah, another way, I guess, is like have some enemy faction that is actively undermining your uh, milestones in some way. Yeah, I think I think that in my experience, both running and playing the game, blowback is sometimes not always where it needs to be because you've got 20 corkboard elements that you're trying to include and having the wizard that you pissed off in session one come back and make trouble for the players just feels like larding down a game that's already gone on a lot longer than you intended it to. Increasingly, I've come to the conclusion with that of just like, it's difficult to impossible to include all the items in the corkboard. Yes. So I try. Like, I always try. You need to expect player initiative on that in some part. If they want to interact with something, they will seek it out usually. Um, in which case, don't feel obligated to include it. What I'm thinking about here, Tormson, um Gas Mask Joe, who was the rival of the other Gas Maskomancer, who oh yes, we were positive was going to show was not convinced that he needed to leave us alone, but never showed up again. Uh, in my <laughs> own Brethren of the Curb game, the KFC guys just arbitrarily deciding that actually they were going to punish somebody else instead of the player characters for the death of their friend because I already had a bunch of shit that I was that was on the table and having another gunfight with some pissed off fast food workers would have been a filler combat at that point. I'm sure we can think of other examples. That's the issue I have is that corkboarding and specifically adding stuff to the corkboard is inherently fun and I encourage yes. more things and I feel <laughs> that I need to pull back and I'll be like, no, we're just gonna do the base number of elements on this fucking board. No extras, just just this this elements because otherwise it'll get too, that too crazy. Yeah, yeah I need to too. restrain myself as well because that's that's the same thing that I did. Um, it's I, hard it because corkboarding is great. Corkboarding is so great. The caveat I would add to that, I would say, would be um, you have a bit more wiggle room there if you know a campaign is going to be have is going to have more than one objective. Another way to do that, uh, it could be you could have. Uh, inception style corkboarding where you have something on the board and it's like as soon as they interact with it it's like okay this session so you you want to go and deal with the spiritualist <laughs> camp let's do some corkboarding for the oh, spiritualist camp. i mean what i was going to suggest is okay you hit one objective you do another corkboarding session where you build on the previous corkboard and players decide all right now that this objective has been achieved what's the how is the landscape of the local underground changing Let's yeah. let's corkboard so you put, it out. You've got like X's, X's through all these things that have been killed off or yeah. disappeared uh, yeah. from the corkboard. That could be fun. A dynamic corkboard, yeah. Um, yeah, would be interesting. Have so I haven't run or played in an Unknown Armies game 
with more than one objective. How about you guys? I'm uh, still yeah, waiting I played, for uh, next with one game. Followed by another. Okay. Uh, yes, yes, yes. It's coming. It's coming. I'll, I'll, I'll schedule it today, baby. Um, I don't would, know who's that, playing. That would be the first one. <laughs> okay. Okay. Then, yeah. I, I mean, I like objectives a lot as a sort of very natural uh, way of scaling a campaign. And as opposed to the most common endpoint of RPG campaigns where they just kind of burn out. Um, due to scheduling and enthusiasm concerns, yeah. But you, sometimes you are in. Sometimes you and all the players are legitimately into this shit enough to have another go at it and keep, have it go longer. In which case, yeah, adding a new objective to the uh, pile makes it even better. Um, that's true. This um, <laughs> this uh, discussion has kind of drifted from dungeon crawling to what right. what kind of campaigns can you theoretically do with the milestone objective framework? And the answer look, seems to be pretty much whatever you want. Look, we talk about structures of games, uh, like a dungeon crawl as a linear sort of progression or exp- exploration structure uh, is a solid idea that. Um, would be useful with unknown armies. I, I you brought up esoteric enterprises as well, which is another example of a game that is sort of unknown armies adjacent. It uses uh, occult underground. It says I think like the, the even the, one of the, the the taglines is "Welcome to the Occult Underground" or some some shit like that. Um, so it's clearly like dealing with the same sort of urban fantasy esque uh, occult weirdness. Um, but what is, why would you, if you're saying like, let's play at a cult dungeon crawl, what's the advantages of playing UA over uh, EE? Esoteric Enterprises, first of all, the Esoteric Enterprises actual mechanics are quite bad. They are a poorly designed hack of Lamentations, which is a poorly designed hack of Basic. So there is a big problem with a lot of stuff from everything from XP scaling to the way the skill system works is it's it was not designed by someone who thought that actual mechanics were important it's a very good procedural content generator it is a complete book which you can't say about a lot of games in the d20 retro fantasy genre a lot of those games are basically written with the expectation that you're going to be pulling stuff out of blogs or out of um one of the original monster manuals so there's a lot of nice stuff to recommend it, but in terms of the actual mechanics, it's not very good. What I would say is don't run Unknown Armies if you want to play a dungeon crawl, because there's other systems that you can do that. You can use OSC, you could use Knave, you could use Black Hack, you could use White Hack, you could use White Box, you could use Swords and Wizardry, Labyrinth Lord. Uh, don't run Unknown Armies if you want to run a dungeon crawl. What I will say is that if you if you have players that have expressed an interest in they want to go to the, you know, Heliopic Brotherhood of Ra's secret temple in New York and go inside of it. They put that on the corkboard. Think about, you know, get a floor plan, drop a few interesting things in there, and then when the players break in, you won't have to say, yeah, you search the building, you find XYZ. You can say, yeah, you're in, you know, the room. This is where they, like, turn the mummies into fertilizer that they then use to, to make bombs that then explode with all the occult energy. And then now you've got a whole bunch of cool stuff because, like, okay, they can can just go to the next room. They could use that stuff to, like, destroy something. Okay, but at that point, are you not running a dungeon crawl in the dungeon armies? That's what I just said. I said, 
But you're saying don't use unknown armies to run a dungeon crawl. I'm, I'm saying that if you are playing unknown armies, you've got a group of people that's pre-selected for not wanting to to do a D20 fantasy dungeon crawler. Okay, so we're specifying here then D20 fantasy dungeon crawler. Sure, don't use unknown armies for that. I guess it's like, how broad are you defining dungeon crawl in any given instance? Oh, that was a question directed at me? Mm. No, I think it was more rhetorical. <laughs> all, all the world. Or the pit. It was directed yeah. at the pit. Yes. I mean, it's all about, like, can you take elements, can you take uh, conceits from dungeon crawls, uh, adapt them for unknown armies? And I think that's very much a yes um, on that. One thing that you mentioned about, um, like, if, if they put a certain place on the corkboard and you can set it up like a dungeon... I think that's a good idea because in my corkboarding experience, like locations don't appear anywhere near as much as GMCs and just weird shit, which is sometimes items, sometimes like unnatural entities, which really like rules as written are not supposed to be there. It's supposed to be just GMCs and locations. And I don't mind it, but it would be nice to have that that, that sort of having like the idea that, oh, this location's going to have some cool stuff in it, we can expect that, would give more incentive for players to be like, I'm going to put this weird place on the board as opposed to yet another GMC that you have to track and figure I'd out motivations I'd go even for. further than you guys and say that you can use other armies for a fairly traditional dungeon crawling experience. You just need to think in terms of like, okay, what are the resources that Unknown Armies as a system has you track? It's not nickel and diming you all the time on gold pieces, so having that as uh, the core gameplay loop wouldn't work too great. But in terms of charges, having some sort of conceit where, all right, you're a bunch of adepts that are going to this other space because you know someone stored some artifact in there with a few major charges in it. That's that's a dungeon crawl right there. That's true, but it's also like if you're designing a dungeon for adepts, it's going to like, and if there's, if the currency is charges... Yeah. So sure, if it's just like a major charge at the end, that's that's good enough. But if you're and trying then to like there's other bring stuff scattered around. In. You can say there's batteries sure. for SIGs and a few miners all around. Yeah, just think in terms of what are the resources that the game thinks is worth bothering tracking <laughs> in a very just, granular fashion. There's just special orders scattered all over this dungeon. Yeah, it's that's fucking like perfect. A, Have like a, a burger bitch. warehouse with the <laughs> like original Big Mac preserved in amber at the center and there's like three major charges in there. That works. Um, but I was thinking that like if you wanted to, you could make it in a sort of very bespoke way um, like based on your, what what players you have and what adept yeah. schools they're following. So like if it's, um, if you've got a Dipsomancer in there, it's a dungeon that for some reason has lots of opportunities to have a drink. Um, which already, it's more work, but it also sounds kind of fun to me to be like, okay, how do I make this dungeon suit a, a Dipsomancer, a Vestamancer, and a Viaturge? Yeah, no, that, 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 that's all, that's good. I mean, like, I think any environment is going to have some clothes and some booze somewhere around there. Cars, maybe a bit harder to fit in there, but you can probably think of something. I mean, when I ran the Cataphracts campaign for the court, it oh, was kind perfect. of like a dungeon crawl. <laughs> Have, like, the Cataphract warehouse as a dungeon crawl, where you're having to deal with all the trucks and the, like, special orders factory that's somewhere in there. Perfect. Did, did we... So I never read the Allmart book 
was that was that one on a, a dungeon crawl like exploring a I big w- store? Uh, no, you were, were it was like you that? work for Almar, right? There, yeah. yeah. Okay. There were elements of that, like if there was like a, a place you could go, which was like a an other space type setup, but taking the Allmart conceit and turning it into like a an infinite IKEA style dungeon crawl would be interesting. I sure. think. Like uh I'm imagining like uh Thompson, you know PT? That like horror video game? Nope. Okay, it's like there's a horror game where you like loop around a series of hallways, literally, each time. But something things change subtly each time. Um, so you do that with like the Ikea walkthrough, right? Where you're like following the arrows through the various showrooms throughout the building, but it's suddenly changing Uh, each time. And then, you know, you make it a bit more interactable than PT where just, oh, okay. There's like a weird eraser head fetus in the sink. Um, it's spooky. Yeah, I can see that working. There are like rule, like in the law, in the uh, books, there's plenty of things that could fit a dungeon crawl sort of setup. Um, in Postmodern Magic, there's the cardboard, uh, what is it, cardboard kingdom or cardboard, the cardboard palace, um, which is just made up of all the cardboard boxes in a five mile radius that can be accessed through gateway boxes and controlled through a king box, which is a, um, uh, a shoe box for the Reebok Incubus, which was a real shoe that came out in the late 90s into and was recalled because they didn't know what the word Incubus meant <laughs> until it was too oh late. Oh my god, that's great. Something that I'm noticing that we notably aren't bringing up is the House of Renunciation. Um, ah, yes. Which, could you make a dungeon crawl out of that? Perhaps. I think we need to... Spend more time discussing how to make the Room of Renunciations more gameable as a whole. I have to thought on that that I'll leave for later. Yes, but I agree. My problem with the Future Room episode. of Renunciation as uh, like uh, presenting it is it's because it's meant to, like the room is meant to renounce one person. Um, so it becomes sort of like if if one of your players gets stuck in a room. It sort of becomes self-play with yeah. everyone either twiddling their thumbs or like taking up a supporting roles. And yeah, you could incorporate dungeon crawl elements, but you have to give a reasons why. I I would like to see some more rooms that like just take a whole cabal. Maybe it's all Agreed. about like it's not about switching one person over or renounce like getting one person to renounce something. It's we're taking these guys because we're gonna renounce their objective or renounce their yeah switch switch an objective. That's good. That's. Having rooms of enunciation is mechanism for switching objectives when, you know, once in a while you make an objective and you do realize, like, oh, fuck, this isn't worth it. We have to do some really messed up shit to pull this off and it's just not worth it. In which case, yeah, okay, let's uh, pull a room of enunciation and now uh, we can uh, properly hate this. And then You just get your other else. objective to 09 and then you flip it to 90. There you go. That's not what, what I meant by flipping, but I like that idea too. I think that the whole thing about the room of renunciation is that it was it's sometimes presented as something that you would want for yourself and then sometimes it's a trap like they're going to well yeah it's a trap or it's something that like a goblin's going to come and he's going to kidnap you and put you in one yeah all i'm getting from this is that unknown armies needs more goblins we need some solid Listen, I'm, varieties I'm gonna, I'm gonna of goblins you. for this the game. Wor- the word goblin is just a fully generic term that I use for magical creatures. All right, well, that's fine, and I will choose to misinterpret you and say that you're like literally referring to some sort of small green man, uh, ideally with big ears, 
In which case, yeah, UA could definitely use more of those guys. UA just needs some more goblin short stacks, I believe. Oh, God uh, improves any game. <laughs> <laughs> I did not expect that from you, Thompson. <laughs> Why not? Why not? <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we'll bring in case onto the sh- show next time. How about that? All right. Sounds moderately. Good. It's a moderately shallow cut. I was going to say it's a deep cut, but it's not really. No, it's not. <laughs> no, it's- <laughs> All right. You think I'm not aware of Goblin's short stacks? No, I just didn't expect you to bring them up. And hey, you're the one that told me you didn't know what bad dragons are, so anything's possible. All right. Well, uh, since we this conversation has descended to the point uh, where we're now discussing, uh, you know. Yeah, obliquely so, so dungeon-related uh, section. I'd love to help you guys out of this hole, but I do actually need to be out of here by the end of the recording session. Otherwise, I get rolled on the D20 horrible fates for people who didn't leave the dungeon in time. So, good luck getting out of there. We're done talking. You have no reason not to let us out of here. I just gave you 20 reasons. Or, well, one, tw- one out of 20 oh, reasons. Oh, God. Goblin short stacks are on this table. Shit. All right. Yes, yes. But no, my gelatinous cube X is also on this table. No.
What are you holding? Ah, you noticed. This sword is the divine relic Dawnbringer, bestowed upon me by Tala, goddess of justice, fairest in the sky. Its radiance is living proof that I honor my vows as a paladin, sworn to walk the path of righteousness, smite the wicked, and uphold the law. No, holding on your other arm. Oh, that's my goblin wife who own a hole. Very convenient. Sup, homie?